Well, once again, good morning to you, and uh, you braved the, the cold weather. I, I don't see very many sweaters out, and my wife said she was going to put a sweater on this morning. I said, well, I'll do long sleeves, uh, but I don't, I don't think we're quite to, to sweater weather just yet. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis this morning, and uh, Brian's in my first conversations about Genesis, the, the original thought was that uh, we were going we were going to do major stories through the whole Bible. And uh, I'm sure if you had have known that and we started the book of Genesis, you'd feel exactly what Brian felt that uh, to just kind of skip through the book of Genesis, would be one of the greatest tragedies of, of our lives. I mean, it's the easiest book to get stuck in and uh, to really plumb the depths and, and find what, what we've discovered so far, the origins of man, all the beginning stories. And there's something about, there really is something about the beginning that helps to define the middle and the end. So much of what we read in the Gospels can be the seeds of those things can be found all the way back in the book of Genesis. In fact, if you were to kind of strip some of the names and and uh, uh, figures out, you could you could find the gospel all through the book of Genesis, the beginning of God, the beginning of of mankind. What's interesting to me is that the history that's told in the book of, of Genesis is so different than than the ones that Hollywood tells, and maybe. Well, I, I think of the Geico commercials, the old Neanderthals in the, the Geico commercials, that the book of Genesis is so different than those, uh, those crooked fellows uh, knocking rocks together to figure out how to make a fire and cook their, their whatever, their mammoths, right? That the, the, you go back to the book of Genesis and, Genesis and you see a people blessed by God, touched by God, walking with God. And, and that connection with God, we're going to find, as we found so far, but we're really going to zero in on the fact that this connection with God changes or changed everything, uh, everything for them. I heard a, a sermon series years back that, uh, that labeled uh, or defined the book of Genesis, at least the first 11 chapters, as the rise and fall of mankind. And so I loved that, that title. The rise and fall. The rise being man being created by God, brought up out of the ashes. And the fall of mankind being uh, really early on, which I think is surprising how quickly man turned his back on God and sinned and, and, and walked away and kept walking story after story. If we could, if we could just summarize what we've, what we've seen so far, story after story, man walking away from God, cutting God off. And don't miss this. Like man cut God off long before he had any sort of reaction to man. Walked away, and, and then we see the spiraling darkness. With every step, the, the life of man becomes darker, away from God. The life of man becomes darker and darker and into this pit of spiraling darkness. We see that with the actions of man. But really what we're going to find now in Genesis chapter 11 is the reaction of God. And we're going, to, we're going to zoom in this morning on the reaction of God because I think there, so you have the actions of men, but in the reactions of God, I think that holds the key not just to the consequences and punishment, but 
through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We're going to just take a whole scope this morning from Genesis chapter 11 all the way to the cross and the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. So buckle in. We're going to be here for a while, okay? Holds the key. The reaction of God holds the key to the seriousness of sin. And yeah, this is going to be one of those kinds of sermons. The seriousness of sin. what's, What's the big deal? It's going to be one of the questions that's going to hang in the air this morning. What's the big deal about sin? Why does God react the way he reacts? And we're going to ask some serious questions about that, about God's reactions to sin of all sort. And that's going to hold the key to redemption and how God seeks to save man. He puts together a scheme, a plan, and carries out that plan through the history of the Old Testament all the way to the cross and the book of Acts. So with that, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read this short story. I think one of the, the, if not one of, if not the, at least one of the shortest stories in, in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. It seems to be repetitive there. They had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. So they've been migrating from the, from the east uh, all along. And it's with every step further and further from their origin, further and further from the Garden of Eden. And I think symbolic, symbolically further and further from their life source, further and further from God. Look at the tendency of man. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Okay, maybe there's some knocking together of of rocks to make a fire, but there's some advancement here to make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, with the concentration being on this tower, with its tops all the way to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice that. Their, their plan was so they build a tower, build a city, so that what? They wouldn't be dispersed over the whole earth. What ends up happening to them? You know the story well enough. They end up dispersed over the whole earth. So God thwarted their plans. So that they, 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 their plan is that they won't be dispersed across the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This isn't the first time that God's come down from the heavens. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, he would come down and he would walk with man in the cool of the day. He would walk with Adam, spend time, invited Adam into a relationship with him. That, that's, that's what uh, they would do all the time. They, they would spend time together. But he comes down to observe uh, what man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. I love the phrase, the phrasing here, the way, the, the way uh, Moses, the writer of Genesis, or the original speaker of Genesis puts this, because it, 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 it seems like God's ignorant of what's going on. 
Like, he's gone off on a trip, man. He's been traveling the world or the galaxies, and all of a sudden he comes down. I was like, oh, my gracious, they're building a tower, okay? There's a purpose for this. God seems to not know what's going on with him. Now, we know this isn't the case. This is one of the attributes of God is his omniscience and his omnipresence. But there's something about the, the, the way that the writer is telling this that kind of deletes that or ignores that quality of God in knowing everything. God seems to be surprised. And he's like, oh, we've got to stop them because there's something going on here. Something that's deeper than what it seems to be in the story. He says, come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from uh, from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. So they were scattered out. They were confused. Therefore, this place's uh, name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Even when you say Babel, you, you can't miss the fact that this is the, the, uh, the origin of what becomes the, uh, the very violent civilization later on in Scripture called Babylon, right? So this, all the way back to this story, we have the first bricks being built in what becomes the, this oppositional uh, 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 country, this civilization that opposes God's people, that opposes the plans of God, that tries to wipe God's people out. You remember those stories uh, later on in your Old Testament of hooks and noses and dragged off uh, to far off lands. That land was Babylon, and God's people since the beginning were aware that there's something bad that was happening in this place. But we're, this is probably one of the more familiar uh, stories in the Old Testament, even though it's, it's one of the shortest. There's our historians, I remember when I was in school, uh, the, the world history class that I had, at least it treated this story as mythology, but it cited this story as um, it, 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 mythologically as what some people believed happened uh, with the scattering of mankind across the earth. But one of the things when you look at, read science and, and biology, that even though uh, people look different across the face of the earth, whether you're in South America or Thailand or Russia and Africa, people on the surface look different. But underneath, science tells us that we share the same uh, DNA characteristics, so much so that uh, we universally, we may disagree on what some people say is the mythology of, of this text, uh, but there's agreement across all of the sciences that man, although looking different on the outside, uh, shares the same ancestry. Like We all came from the same place. Now, some people may say that's fish and monkeys, but even go back further than that, those fish and monkeys uh, came from one source. So that oneness and that origin is shared whether we're telling this story or we're reading our science books. Everybody came from the same place. And there's some fascination around uh, this story. What we find here in, uh, in Genesis 11 is not the answer to how man 
uh, ended up everywhere, how uh, those ancient cultures and languages came about. We don't find the answer. This is, this is nine verses. We don't find the answer to all the questions that, uh, that, that we might have or that science might have. It, it's not so much concerned with the what and the how as the why. And that should intrigue you. As you're looking at these verses, you should be looking and wondering, so, so why did this happen? Why did the scattering happen? Why did the confusion happen? And I want us to double-click on that just for a few minutes. Because this isn't the first time that God's come down and He's thwarted man's plans. This isn't the first time that, that God's punished man or caused something bad to happen. This is a consistent story of God. After all, when you look at, it, at this story, I mean, you, you may be able to excuse what God does in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3. After all, they disobeyed, right? You see, that Cain clobbered his brother. God was disappointed with him in some ways, popped his brother on the head, killed him. We, we kind of get that God would react the way he reacted there. The flood, if, uh, it's, what an amazing sermon last week. But the flood itself, if that doesn't unsettle you and start to raise some questions, then there's maybe something humanly wrong with you. Like dads, when you're reading the story of the flood to your kids, there's some, uh, there's some R-rated stuff in there that, that I, I, would feel, I would feel like, even in the children's Bibles, this is, that's, those pages, we, uh, we'll, we'll draw pictures of the animals, Right? But often, we're just kind of kind of skate over the fact that uh, every living thing and person, man, woman, and child, except for eight, <laughs> were deleted from the face of the earth. So we've already, as we're, as we're moving along and seeing the progression, the consistent actions of God are unsettling. And I want you to lean into that. They're unsettling. Now, most of us have... Some in the recesses of our, of our minds and in the, the pit of our stomach, we sense that unsettlingness of, uh, of the actions of God. But you come to this text, and this one is different for a number of reasons. As you're reading 1 to 9, if the, one of the first things that sticks out to me is they don't look like they're doing anything bad. I mean, you don't have sex, drugs, and rock and roll in this one. I mean, no crazy t-shirts. They're not cussing people out. I mean, they're not even eating fruit here. Like, you don't have in, in this text explicit commands that are broken. There's not a lot of blood on the pages of this text, but all of a sudden God's coming down and, and he's taking severe action against mankind. Break it down. We, we see, I, I think, positively uh, mankind seems to be advancing. We see uh, industrialization. They're figuring out how to put things together and build uh, a city and build a tower. All right? You have industrialization. You have the, the early markings of civilization. They make a plan so that they won't be scattered across the earth because so they can stay in one place and they can build together. What do we say in, in the church all the time? Better together? Teamwork makes the dream work. I mean, all the slogans here. If you were to add some political campaigns and some goofy hats, we'd have early America, our America just a few years ago, right? I mean, these, for all practical purposes, this seems to be a positive advancement on the part of mankind. 
There's not a, there's, I was going to say there's not a lot. There doesn't appear to be anything evil or bad here. So why is God so ticked? Now all of a sudden, this God who doesn't appear to be there with them swoops down. I want you to notice, by the way, um, and this is just total side note, that all of the, that God's having a conversation with himself and he's not crazy. There's the, he says, we, in reference to God. All through the book of Genesis and the Old Testament, we have uh, the, uh, the, it's not the study of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it's the obviousness of the Trinity. God always refers to himself or normally refers to himself in the we, not the me. there's, There's something going on there. But as they're observing what's going on, God has this intense reaction to what man is doing. So there's, I want us to land here for just a few minutes. I want you to lean in. Why is God so mad? We can ask that as a skeptic. And if, you, if, if and I doubt that there's any skeptics in the room here today. In fact, if you look at the absence of a number of people in the chairs, the skeptics are in another room or they're still in bed. But people are asking this question all over the world. In our post-Christian society, when, when people who don't love God and trust Him read the book of Genesis, they find evidence all over these pages for the badness of God. So I want to lean in and ask, is God bad? That's, that's a, such a preachery thing to say. <laughs> is God bad? I mean, honestly. I mean, he's, he's threatening. Early in the book of Genesis, and I'm, I'm, we're going to go on a journey for a minute, and I want you to trust me. Early in the book of Genesis, God threatens their lives for eating a piece of fruit. If you eat it, you will die. That seems a little harsh. It's, it, uh, Cain, before he killed his brother, if you want to talk one thing leading to the other, Cain just offered a sacrifice, and we didn't see a, a textbook, there wasn't a, a bunch of rules. He offers the wrong kind of sacrifice, and God turns his back on him, because then he kills his brother, and he brands his head and sends him out for a lifetime of banishment. He says, you're going to be haunted. You're going to have violence over your life for the rest of your life. And I get it, man, the, every... Uh, intention of the heart of man was on evil all the time, it says in chapter 6. God doesn't appear to be the great reformer here. Like, what does he do? He drowns mankind. If you haven't asked the question, by the time you get to chapter 11, all of a sudden, God's, I don't know, this, this looks like a stroke to me. I mean, he rewires their brains and then scatters them. Can you imagine the terror of in one moment? There's no conversation. God doesn't come down and set them across the table and say, hey, look, something bad's about to happen, okay? In just a minute, <laughs> you're not going to understand anything. <laughs> I mean, it just happens. And there's, once again, there's no, God doesn't give us a process here. There's no, did it happen overnight? Did they wake up in the morning and all of a sudden? I'd, I'd like to say that the man laying beside his wife didn't understand anything that was coming out of her mouth, but that, was, that happened before. <laughs> Men have never understood what's coming out of their wives' mouth, and vice versa. They were confused 
And it looks like immediately. Imagine the terror. And all of a sudden, man, it's like put the bricks down. Something's going on. And let me ask the question again. Is God bad? Once again, if you're not asking that, somebody on your right or left probably is. And if that person on your right or left isn't, you, you have kids or grandkids or neighbors. 80% of our United States now, statistics are saying, are post-Christian. I'm a spiritualist, but not trusting. This, this whole uh, saving relationship uh, with Jesus and the last words that come out of their mouth before they go to sleep, amen. Like we're quickly approaching a time in our United States when that's history, not present and future. And they're asking, is God bad? And by bad, we might just mean an overreactive parent, right? I mean, he created them and uh, uh, like he's just kind of quick on, on the trigger. And most of us have stories like that as parents, and if not, God bless you. Uh, I had a grandmother, by the way, that, that uh, I, I think her whole, she parented uh, me and my sister for a number of years when, when I was little. And I would say uh, uh, overreactive would have been the definition of my grandmother. We didn't go to church a lot with my parents, but my grandmother would take us to church. And we found a lot of things funny at church. It just, the songs that we sang and the these and thous, and my sister didn't make it any better. She'd she'd make me giggle and laugh, and my grandmother would grab the inside of my, would pinch the inside of my my leg. She knew, she had this, she trained by somebody foreign and CIA in how to just uh, bring me to my knees. And then my sister would make me laugh again, and it would happen. And I think that's why we didn't wear shorts to church, because she wanted to hide the bruises. Right? Most of us, though, have stories like that. If, if you got out of parenting your kids without forgetting that you put one of them in the corner and leaving them there way too long, I mean, you go about your day, start another program, and it's like, oh, I said five minutes, it's been nearly an hour. We, have a, uh, we had a corner in, in our house when our kids were little that uh, our oldest, he would, he would pick at the wall. And this is kind of the Shawshank Redemption. He was trying to dig a tunnel out, out of that wall. We let, he, he lived in that corner. It's got a little bit too quick on the trigger. And I, so this is it, uh, all joking aside. I mean, it, as parents, I'm sure you share this. I have, I, I have just deep regrets over... I, the, the, the switch came out too quick. Uh, I didn't ask enough questions. It was unfair. Uh, and my kids think I'm, I'm blessed to have kids that don't remember it that way. I mean, like the thing that I whipped them for, uh, they, they meant not have done, but they would say, I did a whole lot of things that you didn't catch me for. But I feel like there were times as a parent of deep regrets uh, of being overreactive. Is that, is that what God's doing? Is he making too big of a deal out of nothing? What appears to be nothing in this text. Or is God just bad? I mean, is, 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 he, uh, is he jealous of man? That's what it looks like in the story. It's like, if we let him do this, there's nothing. 
If they build this tower, there's nothing that'll be impossible for man. That's New Testament language. All things are possible. Doesn't God want man, or why doesn't God want man to advance? Is he jealous? Is he spiteful? I don't know. Are you uncomfortable with this? Because if you are, it's going to be hard for you to have a conversation with somebody who really believes that about God. In order for us to uh, be able to share our faith, we have to own our faith. In order to own our faith, I'd say at least ask the questions that are obvious in the text. And, and the thing that, that you want to own, you're going to have to fight for. and You're going to have to struggle for. Is God bad? Because once again, we have a bunch of people out there that believe it. And I would say for you and for me, at some point in our life, if it hasn't happened already, a tower is going to come down. A deep struggle is going to occur in your life. And if you haven't owned your faith and trust in God, if you haven't struggled for it, then there's a good chance that Satan's going to plant that question in your mind at just the wrong time. That laying in a hospital bed, standing beside a grave, sitting in a doctor's office, looking at a bank account, walking out of uh, your long-time career holding a crate, a box of your stuff, and that question is going to come up. Is God bad? Why did he do this to me? Because in the book of Genesis, God seems to consistently be opposing the actions of man. That seems to be the consistent picture. But in order for us to own our faith, we've got to look at the other side of the story. And this is what I think not you, but the people that aren't here, uh, fail to do. I want to be fair. I think it's a fair question. Is God bad? The other side of the picture, in in order to be fair to the text, is is to observe the consistent actions of man. They they tell a completely different story. Often, though, you look and it says, this is fruit, and now it's bricks. There's more to the stories than fruit and bricks. I mean, that's, you don't eat the fruit, and all of a sudden they're putting bricks on top of one another. God's opposing those things. The consistent action of man, though, through all, in 11 chapters, again and again and again, is not just eating and not just building, but man consistently sets up a place in his life that is in opposition to and competition with God. I want you to see that consistency because what Genesis seems to be establishing for us is that's the tendency of every man to set up places of opposition, not just eating, opposing God, not just building in competition with God. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, you'll find what Satan uh, tempted Adam and Eve with was believing the wrong thing about the nature of God. And, and actually, you land on this phrase, that you can live life without God. 
So they were supposed to be walking, in, walking with God in the cool of the day. Where were they? They're ha- hanging out with Satan. They're ignoring the presence of God. You look at Cain. Cain pretended like God wasn't there. He's omnipresent. He knew this from his folks. God's always there. He's always available. Where's Cain? He's out in the field scheming and planning. The greater sin for Cain wasn't pretending like God didn't exist. Story after story, one of the things I want you to observe in Genesis chapter 11, the first few verses, first half before God inserts himself, this is the first time in the book of Genesis where God's not mentioned at all. You want to know know why? He says, let's go down, and oh my gracious, what are they doing? This is the psychology of man. In just a few chapters, they exist outside of the reality of of God to them and read those first few verses again to them God doesn't exist God doesn't matter this is fruit and bricks this is theology to them God doesn't exist there's something by the time you get to these verses, there's something that appears to be worse than evil or as bad, and that's apathy. They don't care. God has to, God has to come down and, and like, uh, like through invisible glass. He's having to spy on mankind. You go back a few chapters, and Adam and Eve are walking with God. And now all of a sudden, he's nothing to them. So what's the big deal about that? I mean, honestly, what's the big deal? So, so, so they ignore God. I'm going to take it back one step, because we, we have to ask fairly. So when you look, you say, why is God so mad? <laughs> the skeptic says that one way. But the searcher says, wait a minute. God's reacting consistently through uh, Genesis so far. Why is God so mad? I mean, what, what is the big deal? I honestly want to know. What is the big deal about ignoring the presence of God, about walking away from God, about separating yourself from God? What is the big deal about that? You go all the way back. This is a survey of the book of Genesis. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And the Holy Spirit, you remember, is hovering over the waters? There's a point here. It's hovering over the waters. What's going on with the world without God in it? It's in total shambles. This is a truth that will carry you through the rest of the Bible and carry, carry you back home to answer the deep questions about the struggles in your own life. God's hovering over the waters, and the earth is in total shambles. And then God speaks. He enters in, and when God enters in, beauty occurs. I'm going to land on this. This is the, the theme for our time this morning. You were created to thrive in connection with God. That's your DNA. Follow me in this. 
I think this may be one of the most important things that you, that you ever learn. You were created to thrive in the presence of God. And so we could call this the ecosystem of God, the habitat of the holy. I like that. You were created to breathe the air in connection with God. If that's true, then like a fish being taken out of water, disconnection with God is detrimental to your existence. Follow me in this. If you are created by God to thrive, to live, move, and breathe, as Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17 says, to live, move, and breathe in connection with God, then no wonder separation from God brings struggle and ultimately death. That's what Jesus, that's what God promised in, Acts, in Genesis chapter 2. If you eat the fruit, you'll die. Not because fruit's going to kill you, not because it's arsenic-laced, but the actions that separate us from God, that when we live in opposition or ignorance of God, we like fish, <gasps> gasp for every breath. No freaking wonder so many areas of our lives that are separated from God that act as though and live as though there is no God, are gasping for breath. Could that explain the aches and pains in our soul? Maybe in our homes. That you wake up and stretch your back and say, oh, not, another, not another day. Walk out like a zombie to do a job that's lifeless. It may not be your job that's lifeless. It may be the disconnection of anything you do from the God you depend on for every breath. And His absence from that thing that makes you gasp and ache. Maybe the ache we feel in areas of our lives. Oh, this is close to home. It may be your home. The ache we feel in areas of our lives. Somebody's aching. Good grief. Is death. But hold on. I see, imagine Adam and Eve says, if you eat the fruit, you'll die. They ate it and they didn't die. Right? <laughs> Not immediately. I mean, their lifespan was shortened. I mean, they were supposed to live forever, and then, you know, it's just 900 years, and then 600 years, and then, wait a minute, the further they travel from the presence of God, the more... And we believe that lie, don't we? You remember standing on an altar, and I, I'm conscientious about this whenever I do marriage ceremonies, like that you depend on God for everything. If with Jesus at the center, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says, 
uh, in him, all things, in Jesus, all things hold together. So if you're in him, if your marriage is in him, it, it'll be rock solid. If you separate from him, it's going to fall apart. I want that to be in the center of their minds. And that's great, man. They go out, they have their honeymoon and uh, come home, they go to church, pray at night. And then, you know, the first time you, you don't pray, you get too busy. You go through a COVID season and you don't go to church very often. And you wake up and you think, you know what? I don't feel any different. We have a whole United States that had a year off of church. And in staff meetings all over the United States, that, that concerned the, the junk out of us. I mean, we were nervous because all of a sudden people were going to figure out they could have two days rather than just one day off. And what if they don't feel any different? What if being separate from God it doesn't make an immediate impact? That should frighten you. That should, scare, that should scare you to death. Not because God lied, but because eventually the truth is going to come slamming down on every area of your life. I want you to think through some of the, some of the verses you're familiar with. In Matthew uh, Matthew 4, 4, what does Jesus say? Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's your sustenance. You can probably go without food for a while, but what Jesus says is you can't go without the word of God. In uh, John eleven twenty six, 26, he says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, when Jesus comes, who is your life? This is this consistent uh, voice of God that we depend on him for everything. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 26. And once again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, in him, all things hold together. I want you, I want you to get this, though. I love David. Everybody loves David. In uh, Psalm 42, 1, one of my favorite songs from early in my discipleship, uh, as the deer pants for the water, pants for it, so my soul longs after you. Could it be that, that God was telling the truth all along? And that if, if we were to look at the areas of our lives where we struggle the most, where our souls ache the deepest, where things are coming unraveled and seams are stretched, that those are the areas that are hidden from the presence of God. You know, take uh, mental illness and trauma out. So they're not saying that, that those things aren't real. So... Put those to the side and look diagnostically at your life. Look at your partner. Look at your physiology. Look at your soul. And those areas where we ache the most and are gasping for breath. Could it be that you're gasping for breath? Could it be that you, that you are in those places dying? Believe God. 
that you were created to thrive in the habitat of the holy. And can you even now make plans, say, God, I, I have to get back there. I have to. So if that's true, if, if you were created to thrive in the ecosystem of God and outside of that, you, you die, sometimes slowly and miserably. If that's true, would it be, let's, let's tie some things together, would it be more cruel for God to just stand back and say, hey, look, it is what it is. Would it be more cruel for God to do something about that or just to let it be? Back to the fish analogy. I'm not a fisherman. I'm way too ADD, but I've, I've hung out with some guys that like to fish. And I've been on shore and a couple of times in, boat, in boats. Guys catch fish, and I've been with some rough characters. Catch fish, pull it out. They like it. I have a, a brother-in-law that kisses the fish, and I don't know what that's all about. I've never been with a fisherman that just puts the fish on the shore or on the dock and watches it flop around. You may have. But that guy needs help, right? I mean, you think that. It's like, if you're going to do that to a fish, what are you going to do to me? And I need to get out of this boat. Now they... They put it back in the water. They either release it or put it back in the water and, and don't torture the dumb thing until it's time to cut its head off and eat it. And that's not torture. That's just you know, good humanity. Now, is it more cruel for God to stop us by whatever means possible to stand in our way if that means punishing us or to let us Walk out, walk away from his presence, take our kids, our grandkids, our great grandkids, our great great grandkids, our neighbors, our neighborhood, our cities, our countries, out of the presence of God to gasp for every breath. Who's more cruel? In these few short chapters, God's standing in man's way of ruining their lives and this world forever. What should concern you more than God reacting is when it doesn't feel like God is reacting in your life. As you look up and things seem to be working pretty well, We've got the truth of Scripture. Things seem to be working pretty well. I haven't thought about God in days or weeks. I leave the sanctuary, go home, pop a beer, get up in the morning. God doesn't exist until I'm singing my praise next Sunday. Like Not a thought of God, but seems, things seem to be going pretty well. That should scare the daylights out of you. I want you to go, here's your assignment for the week. Go back and read uh, the Psalms and notice how many times David cried out to God. He cried out, God, where are you? Because he believed what Genesis has taught us so far. That he was created for the 
to thrive in the ecosystem of God. In any moment he woke up and it didn't feel like God was there, he knew he was dying, even if he didn't feel it. He believed in the truth of Scripture, cried out to God. My challenge to you this morning is look across the scope of your life and anything that, that's gasping for breath, that may be your marriage, that may be your occupation, that may be the pit of your soul for you to cry out to God. Because here's what we find. I promised that we would go all the way across the scope of history uh, to the cross and, and to, uh, to Acts chapter 2 in the planting of the church. That from this point forward, we find God pursuing and chasing man to the ends of the earth. That's the rest of Old Testament history in a nutshell. Every, every nation, God makes an appearance. He turns his, looks across the scope of the earth. He's watching over man. He's orchestrating and weaving together history. All the prophecies leading to this point, waiting for a time in history that would be perfect for him to come and redeem. That's, that's the history of the Old Testament in a nutshell. And at that time in history, after Greece becomes Rome and Rome brings the world together and they've got just the right number of roads and they have the uh, language that's similar across the scope of the ancient world, Jesus comes and redeems every tribe and tongue. He brings redemption for what was broken back in Genesis. And mankind have been waiting for God to open that door all along. Now, Acts chapter 2, this ties everything together. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Prophecy over a crowd of people. They're all speaking different languages. You remember the story. They've come for Pentecost and everybody's speaking different languages and 120 disciples spread out through the square that day. And it's not clear when they start speaking in tongues what that tongue is. I, after reading this this morning, I half wonder if that tongue was the tongue that they were speaking before Babel. Like this is the unified language of man. That somewhere in the recesses of our brains, we would understand it. The heavenly tongue that we were created to speak. All of a sudden, the disciples are speaking and everybody understands them. No matter what language they normally spoke, they understand them in, in one tongue. And in that prophecy, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says that God will pour out the Holy Spirit on who? On all mankind. Little girls and little boys far-off tribes and on near people, old and young, male and female. He would pour His Spirit out, and this is where we'll land. Then in Acts chapter 11, or Genesis chapter 11, God seemed to be far off. The promise in Acts chapter 2 is that God wouldn't just pour His Spirit out, but that he would put his spirit in. If friends and family, what you have available to you is even closer 
than what Adam and Eve experienced, waiting for God to keep his meeting and walking with God in the cool of the day. So much greater than that is that God promised to put his spirit in you so that you wouldn't, there's no place that you would go. There's no room that you would occupy. There's no breath that you can take outside of the presence of God. You are the habitat of the holy. You have access to God. The goal would be this. Man, you can come up wherever you are. The goal would be this. If... God lives in you. If the Holy Spirit is in you, then you should, have, you should have to work to ignore the presence of God. You should have to, to make it your, your life's goal to forget that God is present with you. Because there's nothing that you can do. No place that you can go. Highways, byways, boardrooms, bedrooms, Nothing that your eye looks at or your heart pursues that is outside of the presence of God. That shouldn't haunt you, friends. That should comfort each and every one of us. God is with us. So if you would, like, can we stand together? I want to I take you through an exercise. Center your mind on the, the place in your life right now where you're gasping for breath. You feel it. Feel the tightening of your chest. It may, may be your marriage. It may be something with your kids. It may be a struggle in your job. Feel the tightening. Now center your, your mind on the nearness of God to you right now. I'd like for you to do this. Would you take... Everybody, I want to hear you. Take a deep breath. You were created to breathe in the presence of God. Lord Jesus, would you make your presence known to us in the places where we're struggling to catch our breath? Would you remind us that you are life? Breathe new life into us, to our marriages, to our homes, into our hearts. We pray. In Jesus' name, God's people say. Amen.